We return to our Bringing Light into Darkness episode with the distinguished investigative reporter Mike Whitney, and we're discussing the repercussions that not the elite of the world will face, but the working class people of the EU will face due to the energy price hikes that the U.S.-led sanctions on Russia has created. So if this thing was to go from being a special military operation to a full-blown war, then you'd see a complete stoppage of the flow of oil, natural gas, and vital minerals, and, and just fertilizers, and all these other essential things that Europe gets and depends on from Russia. It's a knee-jerk reaction on the part of the West, because if you think about it, it's very logical in the sense that the United States in their dealings with Cuba and their dealings with Venezuela and their dealings with Iran and North Korea have imposed these same strict, harsh sanctions. And it's worked because these countries were small enough and militarily weak enough. And you could get enough cooperation from the Western countries under the United States, you know, advisory that it could have some really dramatic impact. But you can't exclude a country The number one oil producer, that just happened this week, they have outstripped uh, Saudi Arabia, are the number one oil producer in the world. That's Russia. And that doesn't even address the natural gas and the the necessity of that as far as factories, homeowners, everything in Europe is dependent on energy. You can't run an economy without it. Now, that's very interesting what you're saying that, you know, you start messing with countries that can really fight back, then that's what you're seeing, right? It's a boomerang effect. You go into your article, it appears what you're saying is that the Russian economic position in the world has elevated significantly since the beginning of all this stuff. They're not interested in seeing these other majority populations pay the piper, but they are going to respond, as you've indicated. If the EU says, look, we're only going to pay you in our currency, and say, well, we're not going to take your currency because you just sanctioned us where we can't use your currency. So why would we take something that's worthless to us? So now they're demanding the ruble currency. Thanks. It's greatly accelerated the rate at which the United States as being the world's lone superpower. That period, the American century is disintegrating. I mean, today in Russia today, the BRICS got together and announced that very soon, I don't know whether it's going to be in the autumn or not, they're going to produce their own... Mike, explain the BRICS, so the, the countries that that represents. Yeah. So the BRICS are five, Brazil, Russia, India, South Africa, and China, what they call the BRICS. And these countries have great amount of power and influence, wealth and population. Anyway, they announced that they are going to develop their own reserve currency. So in those trades where all of these countries that we're talking about now substantial trade previously with the United States, they're going to be keeping a cache of reserve currency in their own reserve currency, which means that they'll need fewer U.S. dollars, which means that there are more dollars are going to be returned to the United States, where in fact, it'll cause more inflation. So as the dollar loses its special privilege of being the world's reserve currency, that's going to impact uh, standards of living in the United States. And U.S. power quite dramatically, because that's basically the foundation upon which the whole empire rests, you know, is the dollar. So this would not have happened if it was not for Ukraine. That's my point, is that this is all being greatly accelerated because people don't take these dramatic steps 
unless they have a gun to their head. And now Russia has a gun to its head. I just want to address one point that you said before is that people are looking with certain admiration at the Russian economy. And they are because people dismiss the Russian economy. It's a very strong and resilient economy. And they're pretty independent as far as being able to provide for themselves. And they've had made a lot of substitutions in their economy that allows them to be completely self-sufficient. So yes, people admire their resilience, but what they admire more, and you can tell this with the behavior of India, Saudi Arabia, and China, their leaders have been much more outspoken in their criticism of the United States since Putin has taken this approach because they've noticed how one guy standing up and taking the blows, all the blows the United States can uh, deliver to Russia, and they're still flourishing. And so that sort of bravery is really contagious. And that's also accelerating the pace at which this whole thing unravels for the people in the United States. I want to just remind folks that we're visiting with Mike Whitney, the investigative journalist and geopolitical analyst that's been writing and studying not just the Russian conflict, but also all of these conflicts that the U.S. seems to be involved in, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Libya, whether it's in our own hemisphere here. This particular conflict, the Ukraine-Russian conflict, I think if we knew our own foreign policy history, if the U.S. public knew that, and that is what we really study and, and seek to fairly deconstruct on this show, is foreign policy and all of these, you mentioned some of them, Venezuela, Cuba. And we have covered so many other ones. Ecuador, Bolivia, Honduras in 2009, on and on and on. We've documented how the majority populations of these countries, as a consistent and persistent outcome of our foreign policies, suffer immensely from the outcomes of our foreign policies. That we're always on the side of big moneyed interests that allows investment capital to make a great profit. But what happens is that the majority population in those countries suffer at an inverse proportional rate to the profiteering. And let me be clear, there's nothing wrong with making a profit and engaging in honest, fair trade. The problem is when gross wealth inequality is the outcome, where the majority populations are living in perpetual misery. As a result, food insecurity, disease, living paycheck to paycheck, etc. This is the form of an outcome of oppression that we're trying to drag out into the light of day and dismantle. And this whole push eastward by all of the NATO nations, which has really been underemphasized in, in the speech that Putin made, he talked about that, that the reasons for the conflict were, as you were mentioning, in the Donbass area, which are predominantly Russian speakers, they were just getting bombarded relentlessly since the 2014 coup, over 14,000 civilians had died. And there was not any coverage of that in the West. Meanwhile, there's this resurgence of these neo-Nazi elements that are increasingly taking a greater role in the government of Ukraine that we've documented multiple times on the show, so we won't get back into it. But the fact that we could say never again, as President Obama explicitly said publicly, never again will there be Nazism in Europe, never again. As President Obama explicitly said publicly, and then we enabled it and we partnered with it in our intervention in Ukraine, yet has just not even been covered by the West or has been completely minimized. Nazism.
What Putin says was the refusal to abide by the obligations that were made by previous U.S. governments about pushing towards the east and onto their doorstep. And the other thing just was the amounts of weaponry, enormous amounts of weaponry and NATO forces that were being pumped into the Ukraine area. I mean, just all of these unreported U.S.-led provocations well before the February 24th 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine. One provocation after another. And finally, the Russian government decided that they needed to act. You know, you can argue whether that's valid or not valid, but the fact that there's just this drop dead belief by the American public that this was just raw aggression by Russia for no cause is just, I think, not fair to the truth of the situation. No, it's, it's all a question of framing. You know, I mean, if the average American just heard people question whether any American president, be him, you know, liberal, conservative, uh, Republican or Democrat, would allow a foreign alliance, hostile foreign alliance to set up military bases and have missile sites, et cetera, on their border, they'd realize how ridiculous that is, that there's no American president that would allow that. Mm. In fact, they didn't in the Cuban Missile Crisis. They said those missiles are going to be removed. And so we considered it essentially an act of war. And uh, so we have to accept that Putin sees things at least as, as significant a threat to Russia having been invaded so many times before. And so he presented his demands in written form to the United States and to NATO, and they just ignored them. So finally, he had to do what he had to do to preserve the safety and security of his own people. Well, and I think just the disingenuous framing of everything that Putin does in the most negative terms, like claiming that it's Putin that's blackmailing economically the West now. When it seems from your article, you lay out a very compelling case that or, the, or a number of articles that you've written forever. Russia's tried to become an accepted West trade partner and all that. And then with the current crisis and the sanctions and the, and the increase in the sanctions and all that, that now Putin has been accused of blackmailing these other, other nations, when in fact, the economic aggression was initiated by the West. Can you walk us through that? I mean, just the framing of it. Well, at the tensest time during the Cold War, Russia always honored its commitments as far as the sale of uh, oil and gas to Europe. So it never touched those deals, those obligations, which it considered sacred. So even though there was all kinds of cloak and dagger, spy versus spy stuff going on, and open hostility in different parts of the world where the United States was fighting proxy wars with Russia and, and vice versa, they did not abandon their obligations as far as their business obligations. So this is kind of a, a new area of, of fighting this sort of proxy war with Russia. And it's really damaging to the West. But what's discouraging is that our leaders keep pressing ahead with more provocations completely impervious to the fact that they're losing this war so badly and not just on the battlefield where there have been no successful counteroffensive part of the Ukrainian army, not one. They 
do not have the capacity to marshal an army that can take on the uh, Russian firepower or the Russian military. Mm -hmm. So it's been three months of basically losing the war. So they're losing the war on the ground, but more impressively, they're losing the war as far as the economic sanctions, which you said, uh, the blowback from which is really changing standards of living across Europe. We don't have a government or we don't have a leadership that seems to acknowledge when things are really getting bad. And it would be the wise decision to find some kind of split the loaf or have some sort of negotiated settlement because this is not working out. And there's no signs that it will work out. The other thing that occurs to me from studying this so closely in all these different arenas in different parts of the world over the last couple of few decades is that when we try to change a government or try to impact a government, we try to make the economy scream. We do all of these things. We have such influence in so many different areas of international lending. And in Chile was actually use that language. Let's make their economy scream. And it seems like what we do is we project all of the stuff that we are notorious for onto Russia. Now, you just walked through a number of things that indicated if Russia wanted to make the economy scream, they could put the screws to the whole thing in a heartbeat. But that's not what their deal is. They're trying to coexist and they're not trying to hurt the majority populations of these countries, but they are responding to these aggressions and perceived threat to their national security. I want to just reiterate that we just did a show on Yemen and we've been covering Yemen since the 2015 start of the Saudi-led U.S.-backed slaughter of innocents, the most inhumanitarian day in and day out genocide, where the Saudis have targeted water structures, they've targeted electrical grids, they've targeted food production and induced famine. You have the greatest cholera epidemic in the history of the world. You got what our guest a couple of weeks ago said, not 400,000 deaths, but most likely more close to a million based on famine and all of these things. And being party to hundreds of thousands of civilian deaths in Yemen is not the exception, but rather the rule connected to many of our U.S. interventions. We have done shows over the years in which we shared U.S. documents brought to light by Dr. Thomas Nagy showing that we intentionally targeted water supplies in Iraq during the 1990s sanction period ahead of our illegal 2003 invasion there. You can find the article in the September 2001 article that Nagy published in The Progressive entitled, The Secret Behind the Sanctions, How the United States Intentionally Destroyed Iraq's Water Supply. He describes the content of documents of the Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, proving beyond a doubt that contrary to the most basic rules of law embedded in the Geneva Convention, and I quote, the U.S. government intentionally used sanctions against Iraq to degrade the country's water supply after the Gulf War, end quote. The United States knew the cost that civilian Iraqis, mostly children, would pay, and it went ahead anyhow. The primary document among the five DIA articles he cites is entitled Iraq Water Treatment Vulnerabilities, and it is dated January 22, 1991. Nagy provides smoking gun evidence that mirrors the kind of image our government and media seek to create about Russia without such ironclad evidence. Instead, it is best described 
as a projection of our own policies towards Iraqi civilians that Nagy clearly documents and which is consistent with civilian outcomes in other countries we have a long history of sanctioning as well. The excerpts from Nagy's article that provide the smoking gun evidence include, one, that the Pentagon was monitoring the degradation of the Iraqis' water supply, two, that Iraq's overall water treatment capability will suffer a slow decline rather than a precipitous halt, it says. It goes on, quote, although Iraq is already experiencing a loss of water treatment capability, it probably will take at least six months to June of 1991 before the system is fully degraded. Three, that for more than a decade, we withheld, quote, approval for Iraq to import the few chemicals and items of equipment it needed in order to clean up its water supply, end quote. And four, that largely due to these waterborne illnesses and a year before Nagy's progressive article of 2001, quote, the United Nations had estimated that more than 500,000 Iraqi children had died as a result of these sanctions and that 5,000 Iraqi children continue to die every month for this reason. End quote. And so this is what we traditionally have done when we intervene in our own interventions. Yet here in this Russian scenario, arguably, once the propaganda fog recedes, history will show they have tried to make it a war, a military versus military thing. And what history will show is that I'm sure they've made mistakes and they have harmed and bombed public facilities, but that's the mistake, not the policy. The difference is almost night and day. I just am really concerned that we get zero coverage of Yemen over the last seven years where a million people have died, Mike, a million. Yet you have wall-to-wall coverage on all of the Ukrainians that have been victims. And believe me, my heart goes out to every victim of war. But it's instructive that our behavior suggests that we're not really interested in the humanitarian thing. It's all driven by the political, economic, trying to maintain and expand the unipolar position that we alluded to earlier. In the last couple of minutes that we have with you, do you have a feeling for the existing military situation? And the U.S. keeps and the West keeps pouring in enormous and inordinate amounts of advanced military equipment. And it certainly is making the cost greater for you know the Russian side. But it is also creating continual and unnecessary death and destruction to Ukrainians, who it seems are pawns in an unwinnable war. Let me put it this way. On the battlefield, the Russians have consistently been winning and gaining territory, albeit slowly. But These people, the Ukrainian army, first of all, they're good fighters and they're very heavily dug in. They've been preparing for eight years. But the outcome of this war has never been in doubt and certainly not in doubt now. If you look at a map, uh, Russia controls 20% of the land and it creates a land bridge all the way from Russia to the Crimea area. So it accomplishes that strategically. It also creates a buffer zone for Russia proper from any kind of military setup right along Russia's border. So that's been accomplished as well. I think people are going to be greatly surprised when in late August or early September, this operation actually stops because they will probably push on to Odessa if you have a map in front of yourself and north up to the main city up there, what is it, Kharkiv. But beyond that, they just intend to take the Lugansk and the Donetsk 
areas and make it safe for the Russian-speaking people in that area to live without being constantly under siege. But once they call off this operation, then it falls on the Ukrainian leadership and their paymasters in Washington to decide whether or not they can live with the final arrangement and the loss of certain territory. Kissinger even alluded to this in his speech at the World Economic Forum. And he said that, uh, you know, you're going to have to accept that the map of Ukraine is not going to be what it was before. But there will be an opportunity for them to consider what they're doing, at which point I believe the European leaders are going to say, look, we're not going to turn this into World War III because if we don't have access to Russian oil and gas, we have to take a sensible approach. And like you are inferring, if they don't take that sensible approach, then they're just inviting the same sort of social unrest that they had in France and that will continue to consume all of Europe. So the option is pretty clear. But the chance of a Hail Mary pass of the United States actually prevailing in this war, I don't even know what prevailing would be. Prevailing for them just means keeping Russia bogged down in a quagmire in Ukraine. Putin has said that's not going to happen, and it's not going to happen. And there's not going to be regime change in Moscow, like Biden said. So what does victory even look like for the United States? I don't think they know now. I think there's such desperation and frustration that they really don't know what to do. So they're sending these weapon systems that have had no noticeable impact on the war on the ground at all. Well, it's quite astonishing. No impact at all. They keep grinding up the territory and taking a little bit more every day. So that's if you follow the war events on the ground, as I do every day. That's where we are. Mm -hmm. And we don't know how this is going to end. The only thing I would add to that analysis is to my concern that the United States never has cared about Ukraine, completely sacrificed all their people for their own geopolitical and the NATO nation's political interests in order to engage Russia, get them to go into provoke them into this war and then have an unending war. In other words, even when they get that perimeter that you suggested, which I believe is an appropriate analysis, what's going to keep them from continuing to launch all sorts of missiles and bombs and all of that into the Donbass and all along that line and have just an ongoing unending war? They'll be able to do it until and only until the Ukrainian people take back their country from that Zelensky and say, look, we are done. I think the pressure is going to come from the European leaders themselves. And I actually mm -hmm. believe that they are sensible enough to see what you and I are talking about right now and realize that they're going to support the United States and seem like they have 100% support behind them. But the United States is probably on a short leash, and they probably are on a timeline that if it gets around to winter, if we're late October and they need that gas and they need that, and they see the standards of living falling and they see the factories shutting, that's already impacted a number of small businesses have shut down. This mm. is having a real damaging impact on industry in Germany. So I think it's going to get to a certain point like, where their position is just no longer tenable. Listen, I just want to remind folks, we've been visiting with Mike Whitney. He is a investigative journalist. He actually publishes pretty regularly on the UNS Review, UNZ Review. 
I find that your writing style is just full of what appears to me to be someone trying to make common sense to understand what's going on. And, and, and I really appreciate the way you convey fairly technical things, especially around the issues of economics and global economics in a way that's a little more understandable for the rest of us. So, Mike, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me, Pedro. Okay, well, we'll see you next week. Don't be late. Also, we need you to switch on over to the internet if you're not already there to access Lost in Paradise coming up next on 91.7 KOOP. It's a show that evolves around laid back grooves, both old and new, nothing too slow or fast. Enjoy your time with Chad D. As we do every show, we take you out with Land of Naivety. See you next week. Associate your pastor.